are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. I'm very pleased that you could join us. It's great to have you here with us today. And you can tell that I'm not my normal place where I give my YouTube videos. I'm at a place where I've come to you before from, and that is from uh, near my son's property in Tennessee, where I'm out here for a few days visiting him and helping him on his property. And I'm really just helping him. He's doing most of the hard work. I'm just around to, you know, help out a little bit as I can. But it's a great deal of fun for me to be here, of course, to see him and to see what's going on. And it's especially enjoyable that I can take the time out from what I'm doing with him to come and spend this time with you for our regular Thursday, 12 o'clock Pacific time, uh, YouTube live question and answer video. Here's how it works, is we begin with a lead question that comes in from our um, uh, email or something that comes into us from uh, a contributor. And then from... uh, After the lead question, we open it up for whatever questions you have. We have some people already typing in questions because we know we get to them. So we want to get to your questions. And if for some reason we don't have the time to get to your question today, don't despair. We take note of the questions that we weren't able to get to and we try to address them later on a subsequent program. Today's lead question I'll get to in just a moment. But I do want to say that today is going to be a very unique uh, start to our time today, or or a unique thing that we're going to do on today's program. Uh, We're going to have a giveaway, and I'll talk about that after we work our way through our lead questions. Kind of a special occasion for us here on our YouTube channel. So let me get to our lead question. Uh, Again, type in your questions now. Let us know who you are. Let us know where you're from. We'd love to know uh, the city and perhaps the state or the country that you're from. And then... um, as well, if you have any questions, you put it in the side chat and we'll get to them the best we can. Our moderator, Devin, will forward them to me. So our lead question today uh, comes to us from Anne, and Anne asks this question. She says, um, here's a question based on the real life situation of a friend. If a believer rejects Christ, but states they still believe in God, do they have the spirit? What role does the spirit take in their life? Well, let me say, I think that's a great question, and it's something worthy for us to consider. The, the, the situation, as described to me, is that of a person who says, hey, I still believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus Christ. Do I still have the Holy Spirit? Am I still considered a child of God? Am I still, you know, in God's favor? Is God's Spirit still with me? And Anne or Annie, let me explain that question or, or, or answer that question and say the, the most direct answer to that question is no, God's spirit does not remain with people who reject Jesus Christ, but that needs some real explaining because we live real Christian lives filled with doubts, filled with challenges, filled with seasons of difficulty. We face all these things. Now, nobody should think for a moment that someone who's genuinely born again and has the Spirit of God 
that if they read something or hear something and it begins to cause them to be troubled and they wonder, well, is Jesus really who he said he was? I'm not so sure. We shouldn't think that, well, the spirit of God immediately departs from that person. (laughs) That's not the case at all. That's not how these things work. God knows. Now, it is true that if somebody has, in any settled sense, rejected who Jesus Christ is, uh, what the Bible says he is, that he's God, that he's man, that he came to pay the penalty for our sins, if somebody denies that, then they're rejecting God. Jesus said repeatedly, that he was the perfect representation of God the Father. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus Christ. He's the perfect representation of God. There's no difference between who God is and who Jesus Christ is. So, to say that, if someone rejects Jesus they are rejecting God. Now, again, I I wanna be careful with that because I would think of that more in terms of a settled rejection. I'm not talking about somebody fighting through doubts or working through difficulties. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a settled rejection of Jesus Christ. Then the spirit of God is not with them. There is a consistency in the nature between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So you you can't say, well, I'm fine with God. It's just Jesus I have a problem with. Then you don't really understand who God is because he's perfectly revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So it is a serious thing for a person to reject Jesus. And it means that their eternal destiny is in peril. Look, I'm not necessarily gonna be the one to judge, you know, where people are at in their individual relation with God, but I can give you the principles. That eternal life is found in Jesus Christ and he is the perfect representation of God the Father. So to reject God the Son is to reject God the Father and to reject God the Holy Spirit. So Annie, I I would put it in the most direct way to say, no, the Spirit of Christ does not remain upon a person if they reject who Jesus is, allowing for the clarification that it would be a settled rejection of Jesus Christ. So I hope that's helpful for you. Now, um, let me talk a little bit about the giveaway we wanted to do today. And I'm delighted to hear so many of you here, uh, people from Europe, people from the Caribbean, people from Canada, people from all over the world. We're very grateful for that. Okay, we've got a special milestone on our YouTube channel today. Here's the milestone. Just a couple days ago, we hit the 50,000 subscriber mark. And we're very grateful for that. And look, I I understand that uh, I follow a lot of people and I respect a lot of people who have YouTube channels. And uh, 50,000 is nothing for them. They have double, triple, quadruple, you know, five times that in their own subscriber base. But let me just say, for who I am and for what I do, I am very, very grateful that we've been able to reach 50,000 subscribers. 
and I want to thank everybody who's hit that subscribe button and who gets our notifications and who follows along with what we do. Um, to me, it's very gratifying that the biblical resources that we put out, both in my online commentary and especially relevant to our YouTube viewers, is the content we put out on YouTube. It's delightful to me if that uh, is helpful to anybody in any situation. So in celebration of hitting 50,000 subscribers, we're going to do something special here. We're hosting a giveaway. And here's the prize, a four-volume set in print of my Psalms commentary. You know, my commentary, verse by verse, through the book of Psalms, is so long, it's uh, in a Word document, more than 1,100 pages. It took four volumes in paperback for us to publish them. And so we want to give those away to one lucky person here who will be chosen at random. Uh, it'll be random by our part. I suppose God knows who that person is already. And I'm telling you, we're going to send them to you no matter where you are in the world. If you give us a postal address, it doesn't matter where you are. If you're chosen uh, for this giveaway randomly at the end, we will send you that four-volume commentary uh, set through the book of Psalms. So here's what you need to do. Uh, you need to type your location into the live chat, as many of you have done. And um, hey, if you haven't already subscribed, we'd love for you to hit that subscribe button. Uh, Devin, our moderator, is going to announce when the entries are closed. Uh, it'll be somewhere around 20 minutes before the end of the show, 15 minutes before the end of the show. But uh, Devin will announce when the entries are closed. The, the winner then is going to be randomly selected. And before the end of today's program, before the end of today's Q&A, I will let you know who it is. So stick around to the end of the show and see if you're the one who's won. Now, if you're viewing us live today through the TWR 360 portal, I want to welcome you. God bless all our TWR 360 viewers. Uh, you are welcome to stop by our YouTube channel to enter. Now, the official rules for this are posted in the video description or in the live chat below. So always submit your questions during uh, our live chat. And so again, we're very pleased that we can do this. Just a little celebration of the mark that we were able to uh, hit this wonderful milestone of 50,000 subscribers. And uh, it's great. So again, thank you for letting us know who you are and where you're from. And we're very, very happy to do that. All right, let me give attention now, if I can, to our uh, questions uh, forwarded to me by Devin, our moderator, if I can get to these. Okay, Barry asks this question. First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 reads, They drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. Do you think that a literal rock followed them from which they drank? Barry, let me give you my best answer to that question off the top of my head. Uh, that's the kind of question that I wish I had the time to dig in and, you know, right now on the, uh, on the quick, I could just give you a more researched answer. But this is what just comes to my mind immediately. It was a rabbinic tradition that uh, this rock that provided water for Israel in the wilderness actually followed them through the wilderness. Now, it's a little hard to know 
if Paul is putting his stamp of approval upon that rabbinic tradition and saying, yes, that's true, or if this is a case of Paul regarding um, that rabbinic tradition having its place, but really it was Jesus present with Israel in the wilderness, meeting their every every need. I, I don't think that you can tell, at least from my recollection, from the text right away, whether or not it's true, whether or not Paul is putting his stamp of approval on that specific uh, tradition, uh, or if, and of course, Paul would be doing that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because it's in the scriptures, or if we're dealing with a case that he's taking that rabbinic tradition and seeing it actually fulfilled in Jesus Christ and saying that it wasn't an actual physical rock, it was Jesus himself present with Israel in the wilderness, providing their every need. I would lean more towards the latter part, um, but I'd be willing to listen to, you know, people try to make the case for the former, for the fact that Paul was putting his stamp of approval on that actual rabbinic tradition. So uh, I hope that's helpful for you there, Barry. Good question there regarding 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. Tunal Banan, Mr. Subway here from Sweden, says, hello from Sweden. How soon in the future do you believe that the rapture will take place? Do you believe that we live in the last days now? Well, I would say that we should live and act as if we live in the last days. You know, there are always extremes that we can fall into. And that you could say that the devil would be delighted if we fell into any one of these two extremes. The one extreme is to try to uh, exaggerate everything we see in the world around us, to try to sort of hype up the idea that Jesus Christ is coming soon. Um, and, and there are some people who do that. Uh, but then the other extreme, I think, is equally or maybe even more uh, dangerous. And that's people who, for all practical purposes, think that Jesus is never coming back. They sense no personal need to be ready. Look, I believe that God has given us so many reasons to believe that Jesus Christ is coming soon, that that's what we should believe. Is it possible that God would uh, not come again for 50 years, 100 years, 200 years again until the return of Jesus Christ? I suppose that's possible. I, I don't want to say it's impossible. But I don't think that having that attitude reflects the expectancy that God wants us to live in right here, right now. I'll go out on a limb and say this. I believe that God has given every generation some reason to believe that Jesus Christ is coming soon. Because God wants his people to live in that state, in that status of expectancy. Now, is it possible to exaggerate it too much, to go off into weird extremes when it comes to that? Absolutely, that is possible for someone to do. But uh, just because it's possible, it doesn't mean that that's what we should do. So again, I I hope that that's clear to you. Um, I think that we should live as if Jesus Christ is coming soon, because I believe that that's how Jesus wants his people to live. And if I could be so bold, I'll say that's how Jesus has wanted his people to live for the last 2,000 years. 
people who have been expectant of the return of Jesus and have not actually seen him return, they're not wrong. They're just prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ. So that's the best way that I would um, phrase it there. Right, let me go on to the next question here from Joyce. Joyce says this. Are any of your children involved in the ministry? Well, each one of our uh, three children have, at one time or another in their life, been involved in ministry and serving God in one way or another. And uh, I'm very pleased about that. But listen, I'm pleased with my children no matter what. (laughs) Our three adult children, and they are all adults, one's 35, one's 33, and one's 30, um, they are wonderfully delightful to me. And again, none of them right now are involved in what you might call full-time ministry. For none of them, the ministry is their vocation. And I wouldn't want them to have the ministry for the vocation unless it was really God leading them to do it. Just because dad and uh, their mother as well have been in full-time ministry for many years, that's not reason enough to think that you're called to be in full-time ministry. So my children uh, have all given some time in their life to God's service and to doing good for the kingdom of God, um, just in their own ways, according to how God has called them. As of now, none of them have a full-time ministry, uh, even though some of them are right now involved in ministries, you would might call lay ministry. They're just serving God uh, in local church in the way that God gives them to do it. So thank you for asking that question. Uh, yeah, my children are wonderful children, wonderful people that we really enjoy spending time with and are quite proud of all of them, my wife and myself. Okay, here's a question from Ingve in Sweden. Hello, Ingve. Okay, Ingve's question is this. When Jesus took our sins upon himself and becoming what we were uh, for us to become what he was, did Jesus experience our full fall as we experience his full salvation. Ingva, it that would all depend on what we mean by a full fall. Um, I could think of some definitions of that concept that we would say, well, no, uh, but then I can think of other definitions that would, the, the full weight of humanity's sin and sinfulness was placed upon Jesus Christ. He paid the price and he paid it in the fullest extent because it was not just Jesus, the man on the cross, it was also God on the cross and therefore able to um, experience and to enact the infinite. That's part of the mystery of the cross. The sacrifice that Jesus made was even beyond what a sinless man could make. It was a sacrifice that God alone could make. Uh, If another sinless man could come forth and uh, somehow avoid giving into this, he would not be able to perform the sacrifice that Jesus was able to perform because there was an infinite aspect to Jesus's aspect that belongs to God and to God alone. Now, if all the guilt, all the shame, all the judgment that our sin deserved was placed upon Jesus, 
then we would say that he received in himself the full effects of humanity's fall. We come back to that verse. It's, it's an amazingly striking verse in 2 Corinthians where Paul said that um, for God the Father made he who knew no sin, Jesus Christ that is, to be made sin for us. To me, it's so fascinating that Jesus was not made a sinner, but he was made sin itself in all of its rebellion, all its defiance. And that's what was judged in Jesus Christ. So if that's what we mean by the full effect of the fall, but you know, um, there are aspects of the curse um, that we experience as part of the fall today that perhaps Jesus did not directly or specifically experience on the cross. If, if you'll allow me to get a little bit silly, because I, I don't mean to be disrespectful towards our Lord, of course. But one of the effects of the fall was uh, pain in childbirth. That goes back to Genesis chapter 3, of course. Well, Jesus did not experience pain in childbirth, obviously, not even on the cross. But in a way that God alone could, he took upon himself uh, in the, uh, the fullness of that of all the curse at the cross. So I, I guess, Ingva, what I'm just trying to say is it, it's really all bound up in the definition of the idea, uh, the full, if I could look at your question again, the experience of our full fall. Um, I, I could see defining our full fall in a way uh, that yes, we could say Jesus fulfilled that on the cross, I could also see defining that in a way that you'd say, well, no, Jesus did not experience that on the cross. Um, but the important thing is that to realize that Jesus paid it all at the cross, meaning there is no more atonement for sin that I can or must offer. Uh, all atonement for sin comes back to who Jesus is and what he did at the cross. So Ingva, thanks very much for that question. And uh, Look forward to the next time we can go fishing again. Thank you, Ingba. Okay, next question comes from Char. Char Anen asks, if you had to recommend one of the synoptic gospels to someone who wanted to read the most comprehensive one as far as the teaching of Jesus and the example of who he is, which one would it be? Well, Char, uh, we're talking about the synoptic gospels. And if you are viewing audience, if you're not familiar with the synoptic gospels, the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic means to see together in the same way. And that's kind of what we say about um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They essentially look at the life of Jesus in the same way. John comes and kind of gives us a different angle about the life of Jesus. Not a contradictory one, just a different one. So of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which would be the first gospel that I would recommend to people? I would recommend the gospel of Luke. Uh, not because the other gospels are bad, well, by no means. But I think that the gospel of Luke is the most accessible. It's the most to the point. Um, and it's the most, um, boy, I, I don't know. Um, it, it's filled with the most parables. It's filled with the most um, 
stories of Jesus. I, I would just recommend the Gospel of Luke. If I had to pick one, you know, I have a Bible commentary, verse by verse through the entire Bible. And a big part of what we do at Enduring Word, our ministry, is we translate that Bible commentary into different languages. Whenever we set about a translation work, ideally, and we don't always fit the ideal, but ideally the first book we begin with is the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We would prefer to first translate Luke and Acts into uh, the commentaries on those two books into a new language when we're getting into it. Uh, That that would be our um, preference. So again, uh, that's simply what I would say to you in that regard. Uh, I would start with the Gospel of Luke. So next question comes to us from Linda. Linda asks a question. Is it true that the rapture was not an accepted concept or truth until introduced by John Darby in the 18th century? Linda, I would put it this way. The teaching of the catching away of the church as a distinct aspect of the second coming of Christ, the differentiated from his glorious coming, it was first popularized by John Darby in the, um, I think it would be the 19th century, uh, the 1800s. Um, it, It was not popularized until then. So, I mean, I really think that that's just the, the thing that it then. There are smatterings throughout ch- church history before that. Not many, not many. Uh, there wasn't a uh, great deal of attention given to uh, prophetic issues and matters. I- I'm certainly not saying there was no attention. Certainly, especially in the Middle Ages, there were times when people really got off, but there wasn't any extended focus on eschatology in the church, I believe, for a long time until about the 19th century. Um, So you'll find different um, sort of hints, smatterings, but it was not popularized as an idea until the 19th century with John Darby. Uh, Not just Darby, there were other people around in in a few other circles. It's kind of wrong to put it all on his shoulders, but certainly he was a significant uh, person uh, in that regard. Okay, next question comes from Donna. Uh, Regarding salvation, Donna asks, is there an age of accountability? Donna, I, I, I believe there is. Now, there's not a universal age of accountability. Uh, Some of you may know that in Jewish traditions, uh, it's about 13 years old when a person has their bar or bat mitzvah, and and that makes them a son or a daughter of the law. That recognizes them as being accountable before God. We don't have a specific age given to us in the scriptures regarding an age of accountability, but certainly there are many passages of scripture that give the concept of an age of accountability. And by a concept of an age accountability, I mean that there is a time in a person's life when God begins to regard a person as being under judgment for their sins. We are liable before God in two ways. We are liable before God for the sin we have inherited from Adam. That's the, the, the principle that makes us sinners. Um, you, you don't learn to be a sinner. You're born a sinner. 
But then there is also, in addition to that, the judgment that we deserve, that we bring unto ourselves for the sins that we individually commit. And obviously, uh, there are, there's a development in the human person of conscience, of the awareness of right and wrong. And those things aren't immediately present in a young baby and increasingly become so. I believe just God knows for each individual when they become accountable for their own soul before God. And it may be for people who suffer for some birth defects, some early life injuries, some, you know, developmental difficulties. It is possible, the scriptures don't really give us light on this, but it's possible that they never really come to an age or a capability where they are accountable before God for those things. So we don't have a concrete age. I can't tell you that the age of accountability is 10 years old or 13 years old or 15 years old or 18 years old. The Bible doesn't give us a specific age, but it gives us a principle of accountability that is no doubt particularly tailored to each individual. That's the best way that I would answer that question. Okay, good. Thank you for that question there, Linda. Let me pause just for a moment. We're almost at the bottom of the hour. We are having a giveaway today. Devin's been talking about it in the comments, of course. But we've been having a giveaway of four volumes of the Psalms print commentary. And uh, I'll sign them if you want. And what we'll do is we're going to randomly select somebody who uh, gives us, uh, you know, their screen name, of course, and then uh, tells us where they're from. And in about, oh, 15 minutes or so, towards the end of our, we're going to randomly select one. We'll let you know when it's cut off. We'll randomly select somebody. And before today's Q&A is over, I'm getting a note from Andrea that I should sign them. Yes, I'll sign them if people want me to sign them. I'm fine with doing that, of course. But uh, we will send you these books. As, and this is in celebration of the fact that we've reached 50,000 subscribers on our YouTube channel. As I said before, look, I know that that's not much for a lot of the big players out there, but we're kind of excited about it. Just with the little thing that we do for the Lord and his kingdom. Okay. Let me uh, go on to the next question here. You just have to give us your name and where you're from there in the side chat. And uh, in, I don't know, 15 minutes or so, we're going to have a selection and uh, doing this. Okay. And by the way, we'll send them to wherever you are in the world. You give us a valid postal address. It doesn't matter where you are. We're going to send you those four commentaries. Okay. Next, uh, let me add this. If it's going international, they won't be signed. Sorry about that, but we have to send them from a different place. Anyway, sorry about that. Okay, Jim asks a question. When Adam and Eve were the first people on earth, how come there were people who came from the land of Nod? Well, Jim, um, I don't think that the idea that there were people who came from the land of Nod is necessary from the Bible text. The people who came from the land of Nod could have been descendants of Adam and Eve. The simple way to understand that is that we're told of specific children that Adam and Eve had, uh, Cain, Abel, Seth, but we're also told that they had many sons and daughters who aren't mentioned. 
and Adam and Eve lived, according to the biblical record, hundreds of years, there could have been multiple generations spread out uh, over the landscape just within the lifetime of Adam and Eve themselves. And surely that's what happened. So uh, the, the problem is that it's just easy for us to think that uh, the only um, uh, people, that the only descendants of Adam and Eve are the ones that are specifically mentioned. But we do have a general statement in the Gospels, in the Gospels, in the book of Genesis. I don't know why that hit my mind. We do have a specific mention in the book of Genesis that Adam and Eve have many other sons and daughters. And those were the people or their descendants that populated the land of Nod and interacted with Adam's descendants, Cain and Seth. Okay, let me continue on. Next question here comes from uh, Cash. When we are born again, then we start growing. Does our spirit grow with us or do we have the Holy Spirit at the time we are conceived? Well, Cash, uh, I'm going to try to answer your question best as I can make it out, best as I can describe it. But Cash, I think this is how it works, is that um, we are born with a spirit. We are born as spiritual beings. Now, we don't really have life spiritually. You, you could say that we have existence spiritually, but not life spiritually, not eternal life, certainly, until we are born again by God's spirit. So we uh, have a spiritual existence from birth. I would even add to that, Cash. We have a spiritual existence in the womb. If you remember in the Psalms, David understood that God knew him and had some kind of relationship with him, even when David was in the womb. Actually, I don't know that it was David, even when the psalmist was in the womb. So we have a spiritual existence from our earliest age. You, you would make the argument from conception. We don't have any reason to believe it's any other time. So we have that existence it's not what you would call spiritual life, certainly not abundant life in Jesus Christ until we're born again. And when we are born again, we are given as a gift the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us. But the Holy Spirit does not become our spirit. The Holy Spirit's God. He is God with us, God in us, so to speak. So we're just trying to make some distinctions here and reminding ourselves that God's spirit um, does dwell in the person who's born again, but we have a spiritual existence. There is a human spirit, so to speak, that we have since our conception. So, Cash, I, I hope that answer uh, is clear enough for you there. Okay, let me go on to the next question from Dahlia. Dahlia asks, I believe that I will be judged by Jesus at the judgment as a believer. As a form of reconciliation between all believers where we will rejoice in forgiving and being forgiven. Thoughts? Am I off? Well, Dahlia, I think that's an interesting thought. Certainly the Bible says, and this is found in 2 Corinthians, I believe, where Paul says that we will all, in meaning all believers, he means, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That is a very interesting concept because really what it means is that we um, have 
this, um, this, this accountability before God as believers for the life that we live. So I, I just want you to understand that we have this, um, this judgment that we as believers, it's not a judgment for heaven or hell. That's not the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. Instead, it is a judgment that indicates um, the kind of reward we will have and quite possibly what kind of authority we will have in the uh, millennial earth when we rule and reign with Jesus Christ. So um, the idea of us being reconciled to other believers at the judgment seat of Christ, that's nothing that the Bible specifically says. I don't think the Bible specifically speaks against that idea, but we've just got to be honest and say that it's not something that the Bible specifically says uh, will happen to us or is part of our experience. The judgment seat of Christ is therefore reward for the believer, um, dependent on their faithfulness in serving and honoring and living for God um, in this life that he gives us. So again, I hope that's helpful for you there, uh, Dahlia. Let me go on to the next question from Kate. Kate asks this question. If Jesus fulfilled the law, how do you know which laws to keep as there are apparently 613 laws? Well, Kate, that's a good question. And uh, by rabbinical count, there are 613 laws. That's the count of the laws, of the requirements of the law, at least counted by rabbis. And I don't know enough. I haven't gone through and done my own count, so I can't independently verify and confirm or deny. So let's just take the number 613. But remember this, Kate, that even though there were 613 different laws given under the Old Covenant, Jesus said that we could all, that we could summarize them all, I should more properly say, we could summarize them all under two commands. The one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. And the second command is love your neighbor as yourself. If we do that, we have kept the 613 laws. So um, how do we know which laws to keep? We keep that law. We honor God first. We give him our heart, our soul, our mind. We love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind. We understand that. But then in like manner, we endeavor to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, there's something interesting about taking those laws from 613 down to two and realizing that makes the law simpler, but it doesn't make it any easier. In other words, there has been nobody on this earth who has ever loved God perfectly the way that they should. And there's been nobody, I'll give an exception just in a moment, there's been nobody who has loved their neighbor as themselves completely every day, every day of their life. The only exception to that in all of humanity is, of course, Jesus Christ, the man, Jesus Christ. So really, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the fact that every one of us have sinned under the law and really understanding the law of God, one of the things it should do for us is drive us towards our need for a savior. But again, Jesus himself made it pretty clear here, Kate, that Jesus in fulfilling the law 
explained the core of the law to us, what the law was really all about. And what the law is all about is simply this, is that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, and with all our strength. And we should love our neighbor as ourselves, As Jesus said, in this is the law and the prophets. So I hope that's helpful for you there, Kate. Let me go to the next question from Leslie. Leslie asks, I'm wondering if you could explain Numbers chapter 24, verse 8. Some Bibles say ox, while other versions say unicorn. Why would ox, uh, what is the Hebrew word that's used? Why would ox or unicorn uh, be used? Does the use of the word unicorn mean that there's actually living unicorns at some point in time? Does any of this passage in Numbers chapter 24, 8 have any correlation with Daniel chapter 10, verse 21? Again, uh, the New King James Version of Numbers 24, 8 says, God brings him out of Egypt. He has the strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with arrows. Um, Leslie, let me just say that the translation of unicorn is really a matter of the King James Version. I don't know of any other Bible versions that translate that unicorn. And I don't know uh, if my commentary on Numbers chapter 24 makes any mention of that. Uh, I do believe that unicorn is also mentioned in the book of Job, though I can't say for sure. But really, it's just sort of a ancient Hebrew word that at the time of the new King James, they didn't really know how to translate it. And to tell you the truth, I don't know why they chose the word unicorn there. But in subsequent years, we've come to a much better understanding of what that word means, both by comparisons with other languages and other literature that we have, that we've been able to come to the point where we say, no, of course that's not talking about a unicorn. It's really talking about simply the, um, the wild ox that would be evident there. Um, what, what you have is you have an animal that expresses its strength through its horns. And um, you could consider that to be a unicorn, but it could also be many other animals, including a wild ox. Hey, Devin just communicated in our side chat that it's just a couple more minutes. I think at 15 minutes until the hour, we are going to take the people who have given us their name and where they're viewing from. We're gonna put them all into some kind of random name generator, and we're going to randomly pick somebody to receive a free giveaway today. The free giveaway is a complete set of my print commentary. Now, you could, everybody could get the commentary online for free at EnduringWord.com, but these are books in print. I think pretty nicely done books as well, if I could say. You're gonna get that print commentary on Psalms, four volumes. We'll send it to you free uh, anywhere in the world. And if you live in the United States, we'll sign the books for you. I'll sign the books for you. Just a couple more minutes. Uh, get your name in so that we can put you in the random name generator uh, because it's kind of fun to give away something. And this is all being done in celebration of the fact that we hit uh, 50,000 subscribers on our YouTube channel just a few days ago, which again, I remind you, if you haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel, please, why not? You're in good company. There's 50,000 other people who've done the same thing. So why not? All right, a couple more questions. Ronald asks... May I ask what you think of Unitarian teaching? Well, Ronald, 
Uh, Unitarian teaching just doesn't believe in the God that's revealed in the Bible. Uh, They believe in a God of human philosophy, of human speculation. But if you compare the God that's spoken of uh, in Unitarian teaching and compare it to the God that's revealed to us in the Bible, no, it's just not the same thing. So um, I really don't believe in Unitarian teaching. It's just not, it's just not proper. So um, yeah, they, they don't believe in the God of the Bible. And let me just say something. The God of the Bible is the only God who exists and therefore he is the only God who can save. Okay, next question comes from uh, Minki, Minkai, Minkai perhaps. Hi, this is uh, Minchi. Perhaps I'm, please forgive me for mispronouncing your name. From South Africa, maybe that's Afrikaans name. I don't really know. This is Minti from South Africa. I pray that we stay strong in the race until the end. Amen to that. So I sometimes despair. If I look at this world and fear that I will lose my hope in the rapture, how do I stay strong in my faith in God? Um, Minty, let me just say, if you want to stay strong in your faith in God, I'll give you one way to, there are many ways to do it. A devotion to worship and prayer, a devotion to being around God's people, fasting. But let me give you another aspect too. And I'm not saying that any of these are, you know, magical. They're just basic building blocks of a strong life with life with God. Minji, I would just uh, recommend to you that you take time to truly meditate on God's word. Fill your mind and your heart with the truth of God's word. You know, I, I love to do that through the Psalms. I love to take Psalms and see how they talk about God, see how they talk about me, see how they talk about the world around us and the the the, the difficulty that we have in the world today. And I, I nourish my soul by what God, uh, by the power of his Holy Spirit, has to teach us in and through the Psalms. So for me, I keep hope strong and alive through focus and meditation, just mulling over the truth and the power of God's word. Um, And for me, the Psalms are not the only part of God's word that I meditate on, not by any means, but they are special places where I find joy in meditation. Okay, uh, next question from Jenny. What is the Holy Spirit's role in the millennial kingdom? Will he still indwell believers? Um, Jenny, yes. Um, I don't have any reason to believe that people in the millennium kingdom will be saved under any basis other than the new covenant. And the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a feature, is a promise, is a characteristic of the new covenant. So um, I just don't think we have any evidence to believe that people in the millennium who will be saved, and I believe that people will be saved in the millennium, that they, that they will have the opportunity to trust in Christ, that, that, and again, this is more than I want to develop right now, so I'm kind of giving you the answer, which may raise more questions than, than is wise, but... Um, 
entry into the millennial kingdom, for those who are citizens of the kingdom, so to speak, the millennial earth, it will not be on the basis of salvation, but on the basis of being a good moral person. And there are a lot of good moral people who are not yet saved. But when a person comes to salvation, then they, uh, of course, will receive the Holy Spirit as part of the new covenant promises. So again, Jenny, I, I would look at that sort of from a new covenant perspective and realizing that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is part of the new covenant promise that comes to us in Jesus Christ. Okay, um, I guess this next is the last question. After I answer the last question, I'm going to get to our winner uh, for the giveaway today. Kind of exciting. Uh, Charla asks this question. When the generation in the wilderness fell because of unbelief, did they go to heaven? I have trouble telling people uh, whether people like Korah's group getting swallowed up in the earth, etc. Where are they ending up? But Charlie, okay, that's a great question. Um, but I, I got a couple different answers for it there. I mean, first of all, I, I would be pretty sure that anybody in Korah's group did not make it to heaven. They were rebels against God and his, um, you know, heart, his will, his uh, administration for the people of Israel. However, I would put it this way. The generation that fell in the wilderness some of them could have been individually saved. They were just under a national judgment because of their unbelief. We, we need to understand that when God judges nations, there are people who may very well go to heaven who are severely affected and maybe even killed by that judgment that comes upon a nation. So, when God's judgment came upon Jerusalem in the days of the Babylonians, not everybody who died in that judgment went to hell. There's national judgment and then there's individual judgment. And sometimes people who suffer or even lose their life under a national judgment, uh, they individually are right with God and so they will um, go to heaven. So you can't put national judgment or judgment of a group, of a community, in the same category as you would put individual judgment, especially as it concerns uh, the judgment of the ages, the judgment in the last time. So I, I hope that explains it for you there, um, Charla. Okay, folks, uh, I am very pleased to announce that we have a winner for our, this is kind of exciting. Um, we have a winner for our uh, contest here, our giveaway today. Again, in honor and celebration of the fact that we reached 50,000 subscribers, our winner is Cash Sahir from Ontario, Canada. Cash, uh, so pleased that you are part of our YouTube very blessed to have our Canadian audience there. We will get to you within the next week or so uh, these four volumes of my print commentary through the Psalms. Congratulations to you. Now, Cash, please listen to me carefully. You need to contact us 
with your postal address, don't put it in the comments there on the YouTube channel, contact us at this email address, ewm at enduringword.com. Again, that's the letters ewm at enduringword.com. So very pleased that we could do that. And you know what? I got to say, it's a lot of fun to give something away. Maybe we'll do that more. I enjoyed it a lot. Why not? I think that's the kind of thing we can do more. So, uh, again, very pleased that we can have a little giveaway and uh, somebody can uh, take something. Uh, congratulations there, Cash Sahir from Ontario, Canada. Please, you got to send us an email with your email address, or excuse me, with your postal address, and we will be happy to send those four books to you. Um, hey, I want to make sure that uh, I thank, again, our TWR360 audience. So pleased that you can be with us. God bless uh, the ministry of TWR360. Trans World Radio been doing a great work for many years. I want to thank uh, Devin, our moderator, and, of course, our great support team, especially with the giveaway today, Andrea and Annie. I want to thank all of you, our viewers and participants. What a great time. And listen. If you're one of those people, maybe you're a little bit sore that we didn't get to your question here. I just want you to know, um, we've noted your question. If we weren't able to get to it, we hope to get to it at a future um, uh, broadcast, a future Q&A. And you can always make sure that, look, the earlier you get in in a Q&A, the earlier you're in and ask your question, the better chance it has of getting asked. Uh, it's a lot of times the one that's come in late that we're not able to get to. So I just want to, again, say thank you to everybody from right outside of Camden, Tennessee, uh, where through the miracle of an iPhone and uh, YouTube live streaming, I'm able to do our YouTube live. God willing, and if I live, I'll be back in my home next Thursday and we'll do another YouTube live very pleased to do it and very glad you could join us. God bless you and thank you for joining us and I hope to see you again. Please, as we say before, click subscribe, click for notifications and if you want a little bit of help in understanding the Bible better, go to our website, enduringword.com where there is a written commentary on the Bible that everyday people just like you use to help them understand the Bible every day the more we understand about the Bible, the sweeter it is and the better it is. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.